0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 98 by Rudolf Steiner, The Listener's Notes of Eighteen Lectures, entitled Nature and Spirit Beings, Their Activity in Our Visible World, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 5, given in Cologne, the first lecture, on the 7th of June, 1908, entitled The Whitsun Festival of Joint Spiritual Striving and Spiritualizing the World. It has already been emphasized on various occasions, that the spiritual development which the spiritual scientific movement strives for must bring the human being into living connection with the whole environment. Much in the environment, which still filled our ancestors with veneration, has become dead and prosaic for human beings. A large number of people have become estranged from and indifferent toward our annual festivals, for example. The urban population in particular has only a scant memory of what the festivals of Christmas, Easter, and Whitsun mean. That powerful emotional content which our ancestors associated with the festive seasons, because they knew the connection with the great facts of the spiritual world, is no longer present in humanity today. People today have a cold and prosaic attitude toward Christmas, Easter, and especially Whitsun, The descent of the spirit has become an abstract event for many people. But things will change. It will only become life and reality when people come to a true spiritual knowledge of the world as a whole. Today we talk a lot about the forces of nature, but we talk very little about the beings that stand behind these forces of nature. When we speak of natural beings people today regard it as a rehashing of an old superstition. That the words our ancestors used are based on reality, if someone claims that gnomes, undines, sylphs and salamanders mean something real, is regarded as an old superstition. The theories and ideas that people have are in a certain sense immaterial in the first instance. But when people are seduced by these theories, not to see certain things and to apply their theories in practical life, then the matter begins to obtain its full importance. Let us take a grotesque example. Who believes in beings whose existence is bound to the air or who are embodied in water? If, for example, someone says, our ancestors believed in certain beings, in gnomes, undines, sylphs, salamanders, but that's all fantastical stuff, Then one is tempted to reply, ask the bees. And if the bees could speak, they would answer. For us, the sylphs are not superstition, for we know very well what we have from the sylphs. And the person whose spiritual eyes are open can trace what force it is that draws the little bee to the flower. Instinct, natural instinct, as people reply, are empty words. It is beings that guide the bees to the calyx to seek food there, and in the whole swarm of bees that swarms out for food, beings are active that our ancestors called sylphs. Wherever different kingdoms of nature touch, there is an opportunity for certain beings to reveal themselves. For example, in the interior of the earth, where stone touches the vein of metal, special beings settle. At the spring, where moss covers the stone, and thus the plant kingdom touches the mineral kingdom, such beings settle. Where animal and plant touch each other, in the calyx, when the bee touches the blossom, there certain beings are manifest. Likewise, where humans are in contact with the animal kingdom. This is not the case in the ordinary course of contact. Not, for example, when the butcher slaughters a cow, or when a person eats the meat of an animal not in the normal course of life, then something like that is not the case. But where, outside the normal course, as in the case of bees and flowers, the kingdoms touch each other, as through an excess of life, there, beings manifest themselves. And especially where a person's mind, their intellect, is particularly engaged in dealing with the animals, in a relationship such as the shepherd has with the sheep, a relationship of mind, such beings manifest themselves. We find such intimate relationships between humans and animals more frequently when we go back to ancient times. In times of earlier cultures, people often had a relationship like that of the Arab to his horse, not like that of a racing stable owner to his horses. There we find those forces of mind that play across from kingdom to kingdom, as between the shepherd and the lambs, or where the powers of smell and taste are developed and radiate across, as between the bee and the flower. Opportunity is created for quite specific beings to manifest themselves. When the bee sucks at the flower, the clairvoyant can observe how a small aura forms at the edge of the flower. This is the effect of taste. The bee's sting into the calyx has become a certain means of tasting. The bee feels the taste and radiates it like a flower aura, and this is nourishment for sylph-like beings. Likewise, the element of feeling that plays between the shepherd and the sheep is food for salamanders. This question is not relevant for the person who understands the spiritual world's. Why are the beings there, then, and not otherwise? We must not ask about their origin. Their origin lies in the universe. But if we give them cause for nourishment, the beings are there. For example, bad thoughts emanating from the human being attract bad beings into the aura of the human being because they find nourishment there. Then certain beings manifest in their aura. Wherever different kingdoms of nature touch there is an opportunity for certain spiritual beings to manifest themselves. Where metal nestles against stone in the interior of the earth, the clairvoyant, when the miner cuts away the earth, sees strange beings crouching together in various places as if huddled together in a very small space. They scatter when the earth is removed. They are strange beings who, for example, are not at all unlike human beings in certain respects. They have no physical body, but they have reason. But the difference between them and human beings is that they have reason without responsibility. That is why they do not feel that anything is wrong with the many tricks they play on human beings. These beings are called gnomes, and the earth is home to numerous kinds of them. They are at home where stone touches metal. In former times they served humankind very well in the old mining industry, not in coal mines but in metal mines. The way in which mines were laid out in ancient times, the knowledge of how the strata were laid down, was learned from these beings. And the lie of the best seams was known by these beings who were familiar with how the strata were distributed in the interior of the earth, and who could therefore give the best instructions as to how they should be worked. If we don't want to work with the spiritual beings and only rely on our senses, then we reach a dead end. We have to learn certain procedures from these spiritual beings in order to explore the earth. Likewise, beings manifest themselves at springs. Where the stone touches the spring, the beings that are bound to the element of water manifest themselves, the undines, where animal and plant touch. The sylphs work. The sylphs are bound to the element of air. They guide the bees to the flowers. So we owe almost all useful knowledge of beekeeping to the old traditions. Especially in beekeeping, we can learn a lot from them. For what exists today as science about the bees is completely erroneous, and the old wisdom which has been passed down through tradition Is only misled by it. Science turns out to be something useless here. The only useful things are the old techniques, the origin of which is unknown, because humans at that time used the spiritual world as a guide. Nowadays people also know the salamanders, because when someone says, Something is coming to me, I don't know from where, it is usually the action of the salamanders. When humans enter into intimate contact with the animals as the shepherd does with his sheep then they have knowledge whispered to them from beings that live in their surroundings. The shepherd had the knowledge he had about his flock of sheep whispered to him by the salamanders in his surroundings. These old insights have dwindled today and must now be regained through well-tested occult knowledge. If we continue with these thoughts we will have to say to ourselves, we are completely surrounded by spiritual beings. We walk through the air, and it is not only chemical substance, but every breath of wind, every current of air, is the revelation of spiritual beings. We are surrounded and completely suffused by these spiritual beings. And in the future, human beings must have a knowledge of what lives around them if they are not to experience a very sad fate that will make their life shrivel. Without this knowledge, they will no longer be able to progress. Human beings must ask themselves, where do these beings come from? Where do these beings have their origin? This question leads us to an important insight, and in order to form a view of it, we must make clear to ourselves how certain facts play out in higher worlds, where, through certain things, something which is harmful and evil Is transformed by wise guidance into good. Let us take waste manure as an example. It is something which has been cast off and, through wise use, acts in the economy as a basis for later plant growth. Things that seem to have fallen away from higher development are taken up again by higher forces and transformed. This is particularly evident in the beings of which we have spoken and we realize it to a very special degree when we trace the origin of these beings. How do salamander-like beings come about? Let us look at it for a moment in detail. Salamanders are beings that need a certain relationship between humans and animals. Animals do not have such an I, capital, such as humans have. Such an eye only exists on earth in present day human beings. These human eyes are such that every human being has an eye enclosed within them. It is different with animals. Animals have a group eye, a group soul. What does that mean? A group of animals of the same kind and shape has a common eye. For example, all the individual lions have a common eye, all the tigers, all the pikes. The animals have their eye in the astral world. It is as if a human being stood behind a wall with ten holes and stuck their ten fingers through it. The human being is then not visible, but any sensible person would conclude that there is a central force that belongs to the ten fingers. So it is with the group eye. The individual animals are merely the parts. What they belong to is in the astral world. These animal eyes are not human-like, although, spiritually speaking, they can be compared with each other, for an animal group eye is a very, very wise being. The human being, as an individual soul, is far from being so wise. Let us think, for example, of certain species of birds. What wisdom lies in the fact that they migrate at very definite altitudes and in very definite directions? in order to escape the winter and return again in the spring by other routes. In this flight of birds we recognize the wise working forces of the group eyes. We can find them everywhere in the animal kingdom. People are very narrow-minded about human progress. Let us remember our school lessons, where we learned how in the Middle Ages the stream of our modern time gradually arose. The Middle Ages certainly had significant things to record, such as the discovery of America, the invention of gunpowder, the art of printing, and, finally, linen paper. It was indeed a significant advance that this product was used instead of parchment. But the wasp group soul had already made the same thing thousands of years ago, for the wasp's nest is made of exactly the same material as man-made paper. It is made of paper the human being will only gradually find out how certain combinations of their spirit are connected with what the group souls have worked into the world. The group souls are in perpetual motion. The clairvoyant sees a constant flickering along the spine of the animals. The spine is enclosed as if by flickering light. The animals are traversed by currents, which go round the whole earth in all directions, in infinite numbers, like the trade winds, and which act on the animals by flowing round the spinal cord. These animal group souls are continually in circular motion at every height and in every direction around the earth. These group souls are very wise, but they lack one thing that they do not yet have. They do not know love, what is called that on earth. Love is connected with the wisdom in the individuality, only in humans. The group soul is wise, but the individual animal has love as sexual love and parental love. Love exists individually in the animal, but the wise institution, the wisdom of the group I, is still empty of love. The human being has love and wisdom united. The animal has love in the physical life and wisdom on the astral plane. When people learn such things, a tremendous amount will dawn on them. Now the human being has only gradually come to their present eye. In the past, the human being also had a group soul, and the individual soul only developed gradually. Let us trace the development of humanity backward to ancient Atlantis. In the past, humans used to live in ancient Atlantis, a continent now covered by the Atlantic Ocean. At that time, the vast Siberian expanses were covered with great seas. The Mediterranean Sea was distributed quite differently then. There were also vast expanses of sea in our European regions. The further back we go in the ancient Atlantean period, the more all the states of life change. The more the waking state and the sleeping state change in the human being. Now, when the human being sleeps, the physical body remains in bed with the etheric body. The astral body and I depart. Consciousness darkens. Everything becomes dark, obscure, mute. In Atlantean times the difference between sleeping and waking was not yet so great. In the waking state The human being did not yet see such firm boundaries, such sharp outlines, such strong colors attached to objects. When they woke up in the morning, they were immersed as if in a mass of fog. The clarity was no greater than when, for example, we see lights through fog with an aura. But instead, their consciousness did not really cease during sleep. That is when they saw spiritual things. As humans progressed, the physical world gained more and more of its contours, but conversely the human being lost their clairvoyance. Then the difference became ever greater. Up in the spiritual world, it became ever darker. Down in the physical world, it became ever brighter. All myths and legends originate from the time when the human being still had perception up there in the astral world. When they came up into the spiritual world, they met Wotan, Baldur, Thor, and Loki, and beings who had not yet descended to the physical plane. This was experienced in the past, and all myths are memories of living realities. All mythologies are such memories. These spiritual realities have simply disappeared from people's minds. In those days when the human being dived down into the physical body in the morning, they had the feeling, you are an individual, a single one. But when they dived back into the spiritual world in the evening, they had the feeling, you are not an individual at all. You are only a member of a great whole. You belong to a great community. Tacitus still tells us that the ancient peoples, the Haruli, the Cheruski, felt themselves more to be a tribe than individuals. This feeling that the individual belonged to the tribal group, that they belonged to the tribal community, is the origin of certain customs, such as the blood feud. Everything that belonged to the whole tribal group soul was one body. Everything happens gradually in the process of development. Only gradually did the individual consciousness develop out of this absolute tribal group consciousness. In the descriptions of the period of the patriarchs, we also have traces of the transition from the group soul to the individual soul. In the time before Noah, memory was quite different. It reached back beyond what the father, grandfather, great-grandfather had experienced. The birth boundary was not a boundary. In the same blood, the same memory continued to flow as far as generations far in the past. Today the authorities are interested in knowing the name of the individual. In the time when a person remembered what his father and grandfather had done, this was given a common name. What at that time was connected by the same blood and the same memory was jointly named. It was called Adam, in quotes, or Noah, in quotes. Names like Adam and Noah do not refer to the life between birth and death of an individual but to the stream of memories as far as it reached. The ancient names encompass whole communities of people who lived out their lives in time. What is the situation, then, when we compare certain beings, the human-like apes, with the human being? The enormous difference is that the apes have a group soul and the human being has an individual soul, or at least the disposition to develop such a soul. The ape group soul is now in a very special position, and there's a drawing. Think of the earth, see drawing the horizontal line. Above it float in the astral world, as in a cloud, the group souls of the animals which spread out over our physical world. Let us now take the lion group I and the ape group I. Each lion is a single element into which the group soul pours some of its substance. When a lion dies, the outer physical part drops off from the group soul, like a fingernail in a human being. The group soul then takes back what it had sent in and gives it to another lion who is born anew. The group soul remains above. It stretches out tentacles, as it were, which harden in the physical, then fall off and are replaced again. As a result, the animal group soul does not know birth and death. The individual animal is something that falls off and grows on again. The group soul remains untouched by life and death. For the lions, it is indeed true that every time a lion dies, everything that was sent out by the group soul goes back into the group soul. However, this is not the case with the ape. There are individual animals and they tear off something from the group soul, which then cannot return. When the ape dies, the essential part goes back, but a part of the group soul is pinched off. The ape constricts too much, as it were, what is stretched out. And when it dies, a part of the group soul is cut off, so that a piece of it breaks out, we might say, tears off from it, and cannot return. This is how constrictions from the group soul arise. In all species of ape, constrictions from the group soul occur. We have something similar with certain amphibians, with certain species of birds, and especially clearly with the kangaroo. Through these constrictions, something remains of the group soul, and that which remains of warm-blooded animals in this way becomes an elemental being, a nature spirit of the salamander. These elemental beings, these nature spirits, might be described as waste, waste products of higher worlds, which are taken into service by higher beings. Left to themselves, they would disrupt the cosmos. Thus, for example, the higher wisdom uses the sylphs to guide the bees to the flowers. In this way, the great army of elemental beings is placed under higher, wise guidance and thereby the harmful things they could cause are transformed into something useful. This is how it is in the realms that lie beneath the human being. But it can also happen that human beings themselves cut themselves off from their group soul, and as an individual soul, find no possibility to develop themselves further. For while as a member of their group soul, they were guided and led by higher beings, they are then left to their own guidance. If the human being does not assimilate corresponding spiritual knowledge, then they are in danger of cutting themselves off. This is the question that arises. Now, what is it that keeps the human being from being cut off, from wandering about without direction and a goal, whereas formerly the spiritual group soul gave them a direction? We must be clear that the human being is becoming more and more individualized and that in the future they will increasingly have to unite with other human beings on a voluntary basis. In the past, the link existed through blood relationships, through tribes and races, but this union is increasingly coming to an end. Everything in the human being is increasingly directed toward becoming an individual person. Now, only the opposite path is possible, Think of a number of people on earth who say to themselves, We are going our own way. We want to find the direction and goal of the path within ourselves. We are all on the way to becoming increasingly individual human beings. Here we have the danger of fragmentation. Now people can no longer tolerate even spiritual unions. Today we go so far that everyone presents their own religion and their own opinion as the highest ideal. But when people internalize ideals, this leads to unity, to a common opinion. We recognize inwardly, for example, that three times three equals nine, or that three angles in a triangle are 180 degrees. That is inner cognition. There is no need to vote on inner cognition. No differences of opinion arise from inner cognition. It leads to agreement. All spiritual truths are of this kind. What spiritual science teaches, the human being finds through their inner powers. These lead them to absolute unity, to peace and harmony. There are no two opinions about a truth without one of them being wrong. The ideal is the greatest possible internalization. It leads to unity, to peace. First, there was a human group soul. Then in the past... Humanity was released from the group soul. But in the future of development, human beings must set themselves a secure goal toward which they strive. When human beings unite in a higher wisdom, then a group soul will descend again from higher worlds, when free communities arise from bonded natural communities. What the leaders of the spiritual scientific movement want is that we should find in it a society in which hearts stream toward wisdom as plants stream toward the sunlight. Where communal truth unites the different eyes, we give the higher group soul the opportunity to descend. By turning our hearts together toward a higher wisdom, we embed the group soul. In a certain sense we form the bed, the environment, in which the group soul can incarnate itself. People will enrich life on earth by developing something that will enable spiritual beings to come down from higher worlds. That is the goal of the spiritual scientific movement. This was once placed before humanity in a grandiose, mighty form to show that without this living spiritual ideal, human beings would pass into a different relationship. It is an emblem which can show people with overwhelming power how humanity can find the way in spiritual union to offer the common spirit a place of incarnation. This emblem is presented to us in the whitsun congregation when a common feeling of fervent love and devotion burned in a number of people who had gathered for a common deed. Here we have a number of people whose souls continued to shake from this shattering event so that the same thing lived in all of them. In the way that this one same feeling flowed together, they provided that in which a higher, a common soul could incarnate. This is expressed in those words which say that the Holy Spirit, the group soul, descended and divided itself like tongues of fire. This is the great symbol for the humanity of the future. If human beings had not found this connection, they would have devolved into elemental beings. Now humanity must seek a sight for the beings bowing down from higher worlds. In the Easter event, human beings were given the strength to receive such powerful ideas into themselves and strive toward one spirit. The festival of Whitsun is the fruit of the unfolding of this power. Through the souls streaming toward joint wisdom together, something is to be accomplished which establishes a living relationship with the powers and beings of higher worlds and with something which currently still holds so little significance for humanity as the festival of Whitsun. Through spiritual science it will again become something important for human beings. When people know what the descent of the Holy Spirit will mean for them in the future, then the Whitsun Festival will come alive again. It will then not only be a reminder of the event in Jerusalem, but it will be the beginning of that everlasting Whitsun Festival of souls striving together. It will become a symbol of the great Whitsun congregation of the future, when humanity will come together in a common truth in order to give higher beings the possibility of Incarnation. It will depend on human beings themselves how valuable this will make the earth for the future and how effective such ideals can be for humanity. If humanity strives toward wisdom in this right way, then higher spirits will connect with human beings. The end of Lecture 5